And let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Hebrews. That's page 1004, if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The author has already said twice, once quoting from Psalm 110, and then again at the end of chapter 6, that the Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he begins to deal with that subject in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. Amen. That's the Word of God to us today. <clears throat> John Stott, a famous minister in London, told the story of two women at the local market who had stopped to chat with one another as they were checking out. One of them asked the other, what's the matter with you? You look so worried. The friend replied, I am worried. I keep thinking about the world situation. <clears throat> well, the friend said, you want to take things more philosophically. You want to stop thinking altogether. Well, I'm sure the philosophers among us will take objection to the suggestion that the more philosophy means the less thought, although some of us might want to think a little less thought would be good. But anyway, the dialogue between these two friends reflects an attitude that some have towards the Christian faith. They argue that Christianity is a religion of the heart or the emotions and suggest that we will kill it if we are too cerebral or intellectual. And yet, both the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus call us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, which is involved, by the way, more than the emotions and affections, but the whole totality of our being, and with all our mind. Pascal wrote, humanity is obviously made for thinking. Herein lies all their dignity and merit, and their whole duty is to think as they ought, to think as they ought. Right thinking can lead to right feeling, right acting, right outcomes. Not thinking, as we know in Christian circles only too well, leads to people being keen but clueless. You may know people like that. Zeal without knowledge. We need to cultivate the life of the mind, or else our pagan culture is going to overwhelm us. So, in verse 4, 
The author here uses a Greek word, theorio, which gives us our English word to theorize or theory. What it means is consider, think, he's saying. Think about this great figure, Melchizedek. If you've never thought about him before, think about him now. This word, theorio, is used about 58 times in the New Testament, and it means just think about it. Bring your mind to bear on this subject. Consider it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to consider Melchizedek. We're going to consider him again, I think, next week. Uh, but we're going to consider him this morning. We're going to consider the significance of Melchizedek. And then we're going to look at the magnificence of Melchizedek. Well, let's consider him. I've just said that uh, in, the, in the way in which this book has been unfolding, the author's approach has been quite interesting. Twice he's mentioned, once by quoting from Psalm 110, and then again at the end of chapter 6, he's quoted this idea of God's Messiah being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He mentions it in chapter 5, and he leaves it hanging. Yeah, he is designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Nothing. Then again, at the end of chapter 6, he mentions that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone before us. He's gone into heaven itself as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we're ready for him to tell us more about this exciting subject. And uh, as, we come to the, as we come to this this morning, the, the, the writer wants us to think seriously about this individual. This is, what, this is what we read. This Melchizedek, he says, was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from his defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, when you look at the whole Bible, I want you to know this. There are only three verses in the entire Bible that tell us anything about Melchizedek. One of these people who just kind of comes onto the stage and then off it again. His place on the stage is almost shorter than my place on the stage in the one and only stage production that I was ever involved with. I was in the crowd that came on shouting, crucify him, and then left without any more to say. That was it, all over with in that brief moment. This is Melchizedek's lot in life to come and go. Three verses in the book of Genesis chapter 14. But then there's a, a reference in the middle of your Bible, about a thousand years after Abraham, in the middle of your Bible, by King David, in Psalm 110, there is a messianic psalm talking about the coming of the Messiah, where the Lord says to David's Lord, in a mysterious way, sit at my right hand, and then it says halfway through, the Lord, God Himself. David reports God speaking. God says to the Messiah, you will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. 
And so when the writer to the Hebrews is reflecting on who Jesus is, and he's ransacking the Hebrew Scriptures and bringing forward out of those Scriptures the picture that is painted of God and of God's Messiah, he reads the story of Melchizedek through the lens of Psalm 110, and he discovers that the Holy Spirit sheds light on the life of this Melchizedek, so much so that he's able to say, as we read in verse 3, that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. The Son of God is said to be of His order. Now, who is then this Melchizedek? Well, there was a crowd of people uh, at one point in history who worshipped Melchizedek. They were called the Melchizedekians. Sounds like an Armenian family, I know. The Melchizedekians. And uh, I'm not going to say much about them, they're just nuts. But anyway, we'll dismiss them. The Melchizedekians were really bizarre. There are others who have argued that Melchizedek was an angel who appeared to Abraham. Others in the, middle, uh, in the Middle Ages suggested that Melchizedek was, in fact, a kind of incarnation of the Holy Ghost. That goes the way of the Melchizedekians. Others have said this was the Son of God Himself in a pre-incarnate appearance, but the text before us ex- cancels that one out because it expressly says that He is like the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. And Christ is said to be of His office. So, uh, that could not be said if it was, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. The Jews suggest that Melchizedek is Shem, one of the sons of Noah. That, however, could not be true because we know a lot about Shem. In fact, there's a record of Shem's genealogy. The book of Genesis, as you know, if you've ever read the book of Genesis, is full of genealogies. They become irritating by the time you get to the end. You've got to go through all these lists of names. That's very important, by the way, in the history of redemption. So, you mustn't skip the names, but read the names in the genealogies because they're good for you. Apart from anything else, they're very good for your sleep patterns. But, but, uh, <clears throat> but they're very good in giving this great picture of God's movement in families down through history, leading to the arrival of the Savior. We know all about Shem, but we don't know anything about Melchizedek. That's the whole point of the story. So, we come to the conclusion then that Mel, Mel, Melchizedek was a human being. He was a man. He was a man who lived at a very ungodly time. He was a man who, as a one-off, it seems, appears out of the blue in the text of Scripture, raised up by God in an extraordinary manner. He comes on out of that pagan environment, as, as we'll see later, as a believer. And there is no background given to him. We're not told anything about his genealogy. We're not told about his successors. He just is. That's important because the author wants you to to look at him. There he is in the picture. He has no beginning. There's no narrative connection with anything that's gone before. 
there is no narrative continuation afterwards from him in terms of the story of his life. And yet, he has this significant role in three verses right at the heart of the book of Genesis. Now, in dealing with him, therefore, the author of Hebrews is showing us that he has a very high view of the authority of Holy Scripture, and that whatever, wherever the Holy Scripture, the Holy Scripture gives you information, well, take that information. Where the Holy Spirit glosses over something, the Holy Spirit, who gave us the Holy Scripture as a gift, has done so deliberately in order to teach us something. When the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, the author of the Hebrews believes that it's God-breathed both in what it says and what it doesn't say. And so, when it doesn't tell us anything about Melchizedek's death, the writer to the Hebrews says, well, isn't that strange? He just stands there, if you like, in space in the middle of the Bible without a beginning or end. Don't you see how that's a little bit like the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus really was eternal. The Lord Jesus is… Melchizedek in that little vignette of story in the middle of Scripture resembles the Lord Jesus. It's as if He's just there, and the Lord Jesus is eternal. So, this passage in and of itself reminds us of the importance of having a high view of Scripture. The author believes Scripture is about the Lord Jesus. His is the name on every page. Jesus is the answer to every question raised by the Old Testament Scripture. Jesus Himself said, these are they that testify about Me. Not only that, but how you handle Scripture. And how you handle Scripture is that you interpret the obscure by the clear. That's why He goes to Psalm 110 that He quotes there in chapter 5. And uh, from Psalm 110, God's own voice, God Himself speaking through David, God Himself through David's report, alludes to the story of Melchizedek and connects it to David's Lord, the Lord Messiah, the Lord Christ, the divine Lord, the divine Lord who is the Davidic Messiah, belongs to the order of Melchizedek's priesthood. And therefore, there is a likeness between him and the Son of God. So, what about then this short story of Melchizedek? Genesis 14 is actually quite an exciting story. Five kings invade the area around where Abraham lived where four kings of four cities ruled. These five kings terrorized the neighborhood where Abraham lived. They invaded the cities. They took people captive, abducted them, took them away, stripped uh, the places, the cities of all of the booty, all that was valuable, took all that with them as well. And when Abraham hears that some of his own family are among those who've been taken, abducted by these five kings, 
Abraham gathers together his men. I mean, Abraham's a farmer. He's got people who work for him on the fields, looking after his animals and so on. Abraham gathers his gang together. They're not a trained army, but they go out against these five kings. A very famous preacher who worships with us, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, uh, tells the story of the Entebbe raid. Uh, Some of you are old enough to remember. Some of you perhaps have no clue what I'm talking about. When a crack force of Israeli troops in dead of night went below the radar all the way down from Israel to the Entebbe airport, landed, freed some captives, and took them out again. It was a brilliant operation. And they modeled themselves on Abraham in Genesis 14. That's what Abraham did. He went down. He, he uh, defeated. He surprised the enemy. He defeated these kings. He released their captives. He took all the loot and returned it, the property, back to the people who, to whom it belonged. It all seems very political, very ingenious. And then suddenly in the story, Melchizedek, meets Abraham on his way back, meets him. He arrives on the scene without any apparent cause or consequence. He has no narrative connections with any other figure. It's only this Psalm 110 that gives us any hint that there is something significant about the event. And Melchizedek offers bread and wine to Abraham, somebody returning from the conflict, a holy war, offers him bread and wine. It's a courtesy. It's a, it's a mark of hospitality. It's a mark of, of, uh, of blessing. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. What do we learn about this figure? What do we know? We know, I think, three things. One, we know about his religion. We know about his religion. He is a worshiper of the Most High God. I start by emphasizing this because it's obvious to me that some scholars are intent on making Melchizedek a a polytheist, somebody, for example, who believes in a pantheon of gods and regards his God as being the highest in rank among the pantheon of gods. Other scholars are intent on saying that here's a man who does not belong to the covenant community of God's people, who worships his own God, but who nonetheless is saved because he's sincere in worshiping his own God. They have an agenda, that is to say, that you can be right with God without believing in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They actually are teaching universalism that anybody can be saved so long as they are sincere. But that is not the way Scripture presents Melchizedek. It it presents Melchizedek as a believer in the one true God. This is the very first time in all the Bible that this phrase, the Most High God, is used. But it almost immediately is used all over the place in the Bible. It seems that here is a man, Melchizedek, 
who has retained or discovered in his own life the true religion of Noah after the flood, who has retained a knowledge of God, the God who is there, the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Most High God. When he calls him the Most High God, he's not speaking relatively. That is, Most High in relation to others. Nor is he speaking polytheistically, one God among other gods. He is speaking absolutely, God Most High. In fact, you find if you read Genesis 14, that no sooner has Abraham met Melchizedek and been blessed by him in the name of the God Most High, that Abraham encounters another king, the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom would like to uh, buy Abraham's favor and buy his allegiance, and uh, Abraham's not going to do that. And we read there in Genesis 14, verse 22, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and of earth. There you have, there you have Abraham, a believer, acknowledging that Melchizedek is a believer and we, they believe in the same God. And he's expounding what Melchizedek means by this new phrase, God Most High. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, creator, ruler, possessor of heaven and earth. And from then on, this phrase, this description enters into Judaism, enters into the Scriptures, repeatedly used to emphasize the transcendent dignity of God, to emphasize and describe His majesty and power and authority over all things. His throne is high and lifted up. He is the high and exalted one that inhabits eternity. We are to read the phrase, Most High God, and understand that the Holy Spirit wants to elevate our thoughts of Him, whose glorious majesty is infinitely above us, and absolutely inconceivable to us. So much so that when the Holy Spirit wants to elevate our thoughts about the glory of Christ, He uses exactly the same language. When He's exalted, He's made higher than the heavens. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the Most High God. The Most High God is inconceivably exalted in glory and majesty with power and authority. So that in Daniel chapter 4, we read, the Most High rules over all. And this title of God, this title of God that, that this man uses here expresses his own faith. Yes, it, it, it describes what God is. It distinguishes this God that he worships from all other lowercase gods by way of reputation. The world that Melchizedek lived in was a pluralistic and polytheistic world. There were, to use the Apostle Paul's language, God's many. God's many. But these gods derive their existence from beneath. They derive their existence from the mind and imagination of human creatures. 
And we still have that impulse. We want to imagine God from our perspective. I believe that most of the reinventions of the Trinity that are going on in so many quarters within evangelicalism today are basic in human nature is a desire to fashion or refashion God in our image from our perspective rather than begin with God's perspective. This man Melchizedek stood out from the crowd and distinguished himself by being a priest of the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. So much for his religion. He was a believer. He was a believer. And Abraham and other believers picked up his language. They learned from him. As a priest of God, as we'll see, one of his tasks was to teach the truth. And secondly, we know about his office. He was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He, he, he's both a king and a priest. That would have shocked, I think, the, the readers of the writer to the Hebrews. They were Jews. They knew that since the time of Moses and the law being given, that there was a very clear separation between the priest and the king. That separation was maintained. King Saul, the very first king of Israel, ran into trouble because he tried to be both a king and do priestly work, and he was judged for it. There was very clear separation. And although the author of Hebrews does not stress this, <clears throat> David does in his psalm when he emphasizes that the Messiah is the one who reigns and rules with the majesty and authority of God as king over all, and that he is at one and the same time a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek lives when? He lives long before Moses. I mean, Moses is writing the story of Melchizedek, but he's got it from others who got it from others who got it from others who passed it on to him. He's writing the story. But, but what happens in Abraham's day, a thousand years before David's day, 2,000 years before Christ comes, precedes the law and therefore has precedence over the law. That's the whole argument for the gospel in the book of Galatians, for example. So here is this man who was ex had an extraordinary calling of God to be a priest. There is no genealogy, we're told, in verse 3. He's without father and mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, at least none that we can find, none that is recorded. There's no record of precedence for this office or successors to this office. He seems to have held it only during his lifetime. Extraordinary call by God to be a priest in days before there was such an office at all. The heads of clans like Abraham would conduct worship with the household and so on, but, but he was not a priest. He was not called to be a priest. This calling precedes not only the Levite priest, the Levitical priesthood under Moses, but it precedes any priesthood anywhere in the Bible. 
and it stands alone. And what the writer is arguing is that the Lord Jesus' priesthood stands alone, like Melchizedek's. He has a special calling. He doesn't need to belong to the family of the Levites. He has a special calling as our Messiah to act to God on our behalf, to offer up sacrifices on our behalf, to plead our cause before God on our behalf, or as he's just said at the end of chapter 6, to enter heaven itself, to be in the very presence of God, to go to the very innermost part of the sanctuary in heaven and be our representative before God. Our Lord Jesus does that with all the authority of one who has been called and set apart by God. Melchizedek points us to Jesus, who combines within himself the offices of priest and king. And the Lord Jesus was named a high priest in Psalm 110, in eternity. When we say something happens in eternity, we mean prior to His being incarnate, prior to His coming into the world. He was named, and it's there a thousand years before He was born. In Scripture, that God is saying, reported by David, you are a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In one of the last books of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, we read about Jesus. It is He who will build the temple of the Lord, and He will be clothed with majesty, that is, He will bear regal splendor. He will sit and rule on His throne, and He will be a priest on His throne, and there will be harmony between the two. He's going to be a priest king. The third thing we know about Melchizedek as well as his religion and his office, we know of his titles. Two titles, King of Righteousness, King of Salem, which means King of Peace. Two titles, both loaded with significance. The King of Righteousness. The word uh, righteous comes from uh, the word Zadok. Well, you've heard of Zadok the priest from the Zedek bit at the end of it. He, he is a righteous, a righteous priest, righteous king. When we think about the Lord Jesus, because this resembles the Son of God, we're told, we think of one who is righteous in himself. He's called in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Over and over again, we're told in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, that we are unrighteous ones. He is the righteous one. Not only is He righteous in Himself, but He gives righteousness as a gift to people. He gives righteousness as a gift to men and women. This is one of the great messages of the gospel. If we don't have any righteousness, that is, anything in ourselves that has any influence upon the way God looks at us, the Lord Jesus does, and the Lord Jesus shares it with His people. He applies it to His people. He places it on His people so that when God looks at His people, He sees them as righteous as the Lord Jesus. This is Paul's great argument in Romans 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, a right standing with God, made right with God, and it comes as a gift to those who believe in Jesus. But He is also not only righteous in Himself, not only does He give righteousness as a gift, but He He is a mediator of righteousness. He pleads for us in heaven. There in heaven, He represents us. From heaven, He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts to begin this progressive work of making us increasingly, day by day, more righteous as our lives become reoriented towards what is right, become more and more increasingly like Him as we are changed from one degree of glory into another. Jesus is the King of righteousness, just like Melchizedek. And Jesus is the King of peace. Melchizedek is called the King of Salem. Salem is a place, and you know it well. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was taken over by the Jebusites after uh, Melchizedek's uh, time, and they left their impression on the name. The Jebusites left impression on the name. Salem, well known before the Jebusites took over, became Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing that Melchizedek should have been the king of Jerusalem? But the word Salem means peace, and that's emphasized by the author. Did you notice? It's emphasized. King of peace. And, and there's, there's, there's a rightness to the order here. As we begin to look around the Bible from this text, we begin to see that there is an order between righteousness and peace. To, to be gifted with righteousness, that is to be made right with God, to be justified. The word justified is of the same root as the word righteous, to be righteous, declared righteous, pronounced righteous, is to find peace with God. The war between God and us is over. The hostilities have ended. The resistance has been put aside. When the Lord Jesus comes into your life as the King of righteousness, the righteous one giving you the gift of righteousness and then beginning the work of making you righteous, the Lord Jesus brings with Him peace with God, reconciling us to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself because He is the Prince of Peace. And as Psalm 85 says, referring to the Messiah, in Him, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God in all these respects. And because, because Melchizedek's story, as it stands in the Bible has no beginning and no ending, Melchizedek just remains there, suspended, as it were, in space. And so, he's another way in which he resembles the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus 
continues as a priest forever. Our priest, always there in our place, always there pleading our cause, always there representing His finished work, always there for us. Melchizedek met Abraham coming from the fight. It was a righteous war. Abraham met him, uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek brought out something to refresh him, bread and wine. And when the believer, and Abraham stands for the believer, when the believer comes from the conflict, the conflict that we have faced as we have tried to live righteous lives in an unrighteous world, our great priest meets us with bread and wine too, doesn't he? Bread and wine that symbolize his provision for our need, his great hospitality in welcoming us to his table, his great sensitivity to the fact that we are tired and worn and weary and need revitalized by His Word and by His Spirit, our Lord Jesus meets us with grace and with bread and wine, a symbol of His love for us, His provision for us, His care for us in all the vicissitudes of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the provision You make for Your people. We thank You that You have given us a priest far greater than Melchizedek, who actually has no beginning and no ending, for He lives in the power of an endless life. He is eternal by nature. He is eternity because He is God. We thank You that He lives as our priest representing us with our interests at His heart. And we pray today that You would help us to see something very wonderful and lovely about our Lord Jesus as we've considered this one who resembled Him and as He treats Abraham with great compassion, as He blesses Abraham, so our Lord Jesus waits to greet and meet His people and bless us. And we pray that you would draw near to us now and open our eyes and hearts to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.